Greetings from the wonderful seaport city of Odessa here in Ukraine and welcome to this week's episode of Black Diplomats. I'm your host, Terrell Starr. This week we're talking about Ukraine's military readiness as Russia is drumming up fears of an attack. Here to help me deal with the politics of Ukraine's military are Polina Sinovets, who heads up Odessa's Center for Nonproliferation. She is also an associate professor at the Department of International Relations here at Odessa Mechnikov National University where the two of us are recording this week's episode in her office. Also with us this week via Zoom is Mikola Bielievskov, who is a research fellow at the National Institute for Strategic Studies under the President of Ukraine. All right, y'all, let's get started with the show. Um, Polina and Mikola, thank you very much for coming on the show, and I appreciate you taking time. I know that these uh, are stressful times when you have 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border that are threatening to attack. But even still, I've been here traveling around Ukraine, and people are living as usual, because what can people do, right? Um, but uh, tell me, uh, Mikola, how are you doing? Well, uh, I can say that these scenes, of course, provided experts with a lot of work to do. I mean, what is Russia is doing? But uh, on the one, uh, on the other hand, it's quite a challenging scene. It's quite a demanding scene, uh, psychologically, cognitively, and of course, it's a scary scene because really we don't know how things are going to develop. We don't know intentions of Vladimir Putin. So on the one hand, you have a lot of work to do, uh, but it's quite demanding. And uh, really, pe people uh, don't know what's going to happen. And this uncertainty, of course, cause uh, some concern and uh, create some kind of disturbance. Elena. Yeah, same for me. I think that, you know, uh, we are living in a very interesting times. And but there is a Chinese proverb, uh, God forbid you from living in the interesting times, something like that. Uh, so uh, this is also my feeling that, um, of course, uh, we have a lot of work to do now, but uh, but still, you know, the this um, um, indefinite um, future of everything of the of peace here in Ukraine, uh, of course, it uh, can't uh, keeping us from being anxious. Uh, I would say. Yeah, I people often ask me in America. How are things there? It must be tense. And I have to tell them that, yes, obviously people know that there are tens of thousands of troops on the Ukrainian border, but I travel around and people are living their lives as normal. And people assume that the war zones that are in Eastern Ukraine are the entire country. And I have to explain to people that know, the, uh, for the most part around this country, if you did not know that there was a Kremlin occupation in the East, you wouldn't know about it. And it doesn't dominate news media here in ways that people think that it does, because this has been an issue for years. And so people are used to it. And 
we have this idea of Ukraine through our news cycle and people assume that this is all that people are thinking about and is controlling their minds and it's not. I posted a photo of myself with some kids um, <laughs> posing with them because I have a, a red coat with a white fox trim and people think that I'm dressing like Santa Claus. <laughs> okay, people, you know, children are waiting for for the Santa Claus, not uh, Putin here, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> This is obvious. <laughs> yeah, because I'm every 10 minutes people are stopping me and saying, "Oh, you're a Father Frost. Can we take photos with Father Frost?" Every 10 minutes. And I have to schedule my day around it because people <laughs> are asking me to take photos. I was in Ivanov Frankivs. I was in Lviv and people are asking same things and so i posted a photo of myself on my twitter just to show people that people are still having joy people are in, in living their lives and celebrating the holiday and it's not just all about putin and to me it was important to post that to show that this is just not a new subject there are human beings who live here and anytime i do a podcast or I do any type of broadcast from Ukraine or about Ukraine, I always emphasize that, you know. One of the things that people are interested in, Nicola, is how prepared is Ukraine to defend itself? And I know I reported on this back in 2014 about how ill-equipped Ukraine was to defend itself, but obviously the Ukrainian military has made a number of improvements. And so can you tell us about what those improvements are and how much has the military modernized from your point of view? Well, I, I think it's proper to start from the fact that back in 2014, Ukrainian armed forces existed more in paper than in reality. So they were Uh, not a, a fighting force to be reckoned with. And the loss, uh, given the negligence and given underfinanced all over the years previous to 2014, uh, Ukrainian forces were not ready to sustain even two months effective combat in Donbass. So we, we need to start from this understanding that uh, Ukrainian forces were barely existing or even non-existing. And yes, uh, in these almost eight years, they did a lot of job, really a lot of job. And alas, uh, it's not a cause of great coverage in the West, because uh, if you compare what was going on eight years and what is going on now, it's uh, two different scenes. Basically, now we can say that we have the most capable and combat-ready armed forces in all 30 years of our country existence. So if you look at these armed forces, they are numerically uh, much bigger They are uh, trained for uh, combined arms warfare because uh, before 2013, there was almost no field exercises, you know, to, to train these uh, tactics and combined arms warfare skills of the soldiers and uh, uh, their commanders. And of course, a lot was done to improve uh, the 
quality and a quantity of the equipment. A lot was done in terms of improving armor, I mean, modernization of main battle tanks, uh, uh, procurement of new armor uh, produced by both state and non-state entities. A lot of was done in anti-tank guided missiles, because yes, on the one hand, we're still in need of uh, Javelin anti-tank guided missiles uh, produced by US and provided by US government. But on the other hand, our own state enterprise was ready to mass produce uh, anti-tank guided complexes in uh, hundreds uh, of launch units and thousands of missiles. A lot was done in field of intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. Uh, we, we started war with cumbersome old uh, Soviet UAVs that were not ready to provide cover, leave coverage. So basically information that was uh, gathered by them was useless. Now we have modern tactical and operational tactical UAVs for intelligence surveillance reconnaissance. Uh, we have uh, uh, new uh, radar systems that monitor the situation in the air around Ukraine and in Ukraine, so we know what's going on in our skies and any kind of air assault would not be, would not came out of blue uh, for, for Ukraine. Also, a lot was done in terms of command and control because uh, we started war again with Soviet equipment that was not uh, reliable. It was not resistant to electronic warfare. Russia practiced a lot in Donbass. So I can say a lot was done uh, by Ukrainian armed forces that barely existed and functioned in 2014. Now it's the best force we have. But yes, uh, to, to say that we... We, we, we uh, done everything and we can just sit. It, it would not be right, of course. There is a lot of work to do. And alas, we have a kind of constraints, objective constraints. First of all, it's, it's, it's about budget. Yes, we increase the defense budget from uh, approximately $1.8 billion to uh, $4.35 billion last year. But it's not enough. It's uh, meeting our needs approximately the level 55-60%. So to have a modernized force, we, we need much more budget. I would say that in general, this amount of funding allow us to, to uh, maintain a Soviet equipment, somehow modernize it to, to this or that extent and procure some brand new items, uh, either uh, Ukraine produced or produced by our partners and imported by us, uh, like uh, javelins, like uh, uh, communication equipment, like uh, well-known Bayraktar uh, combat UAVs. Uh, so on the one hand, we did quite a lot. That's completely another armed forces that were in 2014. But at the same time, we, we still have a lot, a lot of work to do. And we're still in process, basically, I'll, I'll conclude. We're still in process of moving from the World War II templates that were characterized by the mass and momentum. So you, you, you have a lot of uh, hardware, you have a lot of troops, and you, you move them constantly to, to create superiority. And this is that point. We are still in the process of moving from this World War II template to, to more modern templates uh, characterized by this Ireland battle doctrine, where a long-range fire and non-contact warfare and a precision of fire are the most important things. So we're still in process, and I would say more or less, given all constraints, uh, given uh, the lack of funds, despite some increase, we did quite a superb uh, job, but of course we need foreign assistance to compensate this huge disparity with Russia. Right, uh, thank you for that, Mikola. So, uh, Polina, I think a lot of people don't understand what it's like 
to rebuild a military or to uh, to to create a a security infrastructure thirty years after independence. And so, do you mind kind of getting into, you know, politically what that has meant for Ukraine to create its own? Not because it's it's about military, but it's also about creating your own identity, separating your own identity as well. So it's not just merely about developing your military, right? Um, yeah, I think that I will be uh, more or less brief here. I think that the main problem of Ukraine before. Um, 2014 was uh, the fact that there was no um, awareness of Russian threat. So um, uh, it was, but nobody was seriously thinking uh, that Russia could really attack and, um, you know, annex Crimea or start military uh, actions in Donbass. <laughs> it was something very unbelievable. And um, also, um, Ukraine was, um, for some reason, uh, blindly believing in uh, documents. I mean, Budapest Memorandum, I know that you uh, we have this uh, issue. Uh, but um, what is interesting about, uh, for example, Ukrainian military, military doctrine, which actually shows how Ukraine was uh, preparing uh, to deter threats or to confront threats. Uh, the most interesting thing is that I think that before uh, 2014, there was no word deterrence uh, in Ukrainian military doctrine at all. And uh, um, in uh, even in doctrine 2012, uh, there was the issue. So um, first of all, what we're doing uh, to react at the um, conflict facing Ukraine, we are going to refer to our uh, guarantors according to Budapest Memorandum. Uh, to help us uh, to resolve the issue. So actually, we were not thinking of building up our military forces. We were uh, just, uh, you know, believing that somebody from abroad will come and help us. Um, even th 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 that kind of, even not thinking that uh, that kind of somebody uh, will is able actually or is preparing to come to invade uh, parts of our country. Uh, this was a paradoxical, it, and that is why I think that that um, you know uh, relaxed um, threat perception, I would say, it influenced um, the uh, combat readiness of troops, the combat uh, everything. It influenced the Ukrainian military forces, Ukrainian military posture, everything. Um, Ukraine was not uh, prepared for you know waging any kind of war then that time. So uh, and and you know you know. Continuing, uh, that fact that, um, you know, the events of 2014, they were, they changed a lot. And first of all, in the Ukrainian uh, threat perception, in Ukrainian self-identity, in the way that, uh, you know, uh, there is there was a joke in Ukraine that Putin is the best friend of Ukrainian nation because he contributed a lot to f uh, forming of a Ukrainian nation. Because after the, um, you know, events of 2014, uh, Ukrainians understood that uh, they are Ukrainians and that brothers Russians are maybe not so much brothers, as much as there can be enemies. Um, so um, this is why I think uh, that uh, it was the sort of the uh, psychological turning point in, um, you know, defining and understanding threats and uh, uh, the preparation to confront them. Right. Mikola, um, you probably can uh, talk about what I'm going to say as well, but I was here in 2010 in Ukraine and... I remember, I know this is, this feels maybe like 
long history for a lot of people, or they may not know about this at all. But I remember the time when, you know, Yulia Tomashenko and Victor, um, and, and also Yanukovych, they were vying for the presidency. And one of the hot button issues was this, uh, this Navy, this Russian Navy uh, seaport in Sevastopol. And the lease would have run out in 2017 had Ukraine not signed it. But um, the reality is that it did. But, um, and so now this, this lease is going to run through 2040. And that position, that military position provided very key strategic um, you know, location for Russia to advance its attack and, and claim Crimea. And so when you talk about the politics of this all, you had a leader who pretty much operated as Putin's puppet. And so one of the things that I notice about Ukraine now, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, but this feels like the most, I guess the best word way I could describe the most pro-Ukrainian, um, you know, political um, environment probably in its 30 years. And so it is important for us to kind of talk about what you were mentioning, like the politics of this all, because if you don't have this awareness or you don't see Russia as a threat, then you're going to make decisions that are going to cater to being in a situation where you can be caught off guard. Um, uh, Nicole, I'll, I'll let you go from here. Well, uh, if we are recalling uh, Viktor Yanukovych regime, uh, well, we need to start that, yes, they were operating from totally different assumptions, and these assumptions proved wrong. And uh, Viktor Yanukovych did a lot of negative stuff with his Koterai that negatively affected Ukrainian security. It's not only about the prolongation of the stay of a Black Sea a fleet till 2044 under Kharkiv Agreement. That was very important for Russia indeed to preserve its influence in Crimea. And yes, we remember how the station of a Black Sea fleet uh, in Sevastopol uh, basically helped Russia to quickly seize uh, Crimea in 2013. Not only that was done by Yanukovych, he also was the one who uh, stopped our Euro-Atlantic integration and at the same time did not invest in Ukrainian armed forces. That's why we basically met 2014 uh, under the worst possible scenario without proper external security guarantees provided by NATO and at the same time with our armed forces uh, being non-existent or barely existent. So yes, uh, a lot of negative things were done because Viktor Yanukovych uh, and his Koterai, they were um, doing everything from totally wrong assumptions that if we are more or less accommodating to Russia, if we are, we, we, we are pursuing a kind of our own reset with Russia, then Russia may be not that threatening uh, with regard to Ukraine and would not, uh, there would be no need to do something that Russia done against Georgia in 2018, when, uh, 2008, when it launched limited aggression against uh, Georgia, but everything proved wrong. And uh, Yanukovych greatly misjudged Russia, misjudged Putin, and misjudged the fact that uh, international environment negatively uh, changed uh, uh, with a with Ukrainian interests, Ukrainian um, calculations that basically 
Russia was investing and continued to invest in its hard power, its launch aggression against Georgia, which means that it's ready to resort to force to satisfy its interests. So yeah, uh, it's uh, a kind of when uh, policy uh, uh, done by previous administration, uh, not, not by previous, but by one of the previous administration, of course, we also have a Poroshenko, turn uh, uh, then uh, but policies done by Yanukovych and his uh, confidence negatively affected uh, Ukraine but at the same time I would say that uh, by uh, trying this non-alignment by trying accommodation towards Russia uh, basically um, now we have this argument we, we at least tried because uh, now we also have this again suggestions maybe Ukraine tried to be more accommodating towards Russia maybe neutrality and so on we already have this kind of stuff we already tried it uh, pursuing non-alignment and uh, not pursuing NATO membership it's, it failed us in 2014 so now we are firmly on Euro-Atlantic European integration, because uh, we did other uh, things before, it proved wrong, it uh, wow. created more favorable environment for Russian aggression, and now we're firmly on Euro-Atlantic integration, because Putin aggression left us no other option. One thing I wanted to ask you both about is Western, uh, is diplomacy. Uh, I know that there are a lot of critiques that we have of Petro Poroshenko's uh, administration, but in the West, one thing that he was credited for was being a, a good diplomat. And, and also one thing that people in the West, well, I'm speaking more from America, uh, saying is that he has some credit for helping to maintain Ukrainian, maintaining the country. And it helps that he speaks English pretty well. Um, that, that helps. And I'm not saying that that should be a factor, but it helps significantly that he understands how to communicate with the West and that, you, that Ukraine e even exists in the middle of this Russian threat is a miracle because militarily uh, Ukraine is outgunned and is outweighed, right? Um, and so people say that his diplomacy helped to reestablish uh, diplomatic ties that are opening up the doors so that there can be this exchange of how can the West uh, assist the military and how in, in this relationship with NATO. I'm more specifically interested in, um, in your thoughts, Polina, about NATO and the role that um, Ukraine wants to be in NATO and why is NATO so resistant to opening up the door or eventual pathway Ukraine to enter into the organization? Um, you know, I, I think that the, the answer is pretty short. It's Russia. Uh, I've been to NATO Defense College in, back in 2015. And I was, um, you know, listening lectures about NATO. I was um, interviewing NATO officials. And uh, they, uh, one NATO official, frankly, told me that, you know, now we are in a very uncomfortable position because Georgia actually fulfilled all the demands which NATO imposed to, to join the alliance. But we can't accept Georgia 
just because of Russia. So, uh, you know, um, you know, formally we, we should, but we can't. Uh, and, um, I, I, you know, if to compare Georgia with Ukraine, I mean, f- as for the, its value for Russia, I think that Ukraine is like, um, you know, Russia is feeling that Ukraine is sort of a part of it. Georgia is also very important, but Ukraine is some kind of like part of Russian identity as, I, as they perceive it. This is why I think that uh, it was um, the basic, and it is the basic main uh, red line, which uh, always, uh, which has been prevented uh, NATO from um, taking Ukraine um, to its uh, to the membership. Right, and so I want to go into that about Ukraine being a part of the uh, identity of Russia. So the Kremlin, so Putin says, including in his 5,000 word um, high school essay (laughs) about Ukrainian history and culture. Um, I'm actually going to do an episode that focuses on that essay because I think they're, I'm not going to do that episode because I think the essay is good. I think I'm going to do the episode because it goes into his thinking Mm -hmm. because even though he used a lot of falsity and misinformation, Information, it tells the truth yeah. about how Putin thinks. Yes, yes. That's that's sure. the number one thing that it does. Yes, this is a problem because um, this is what he believes in. And uh, by the way, this is what all Soviet children uh, received um, during history lessons. Um, you know, d- during all these school years. So um, you know, even even I uh, remember that, that there was this narrative about. Um, the brotherly Russian nations. I mean that uh, we are uh, we are the same nation, having the same root and uh, the same history, uh, but uh, somehow will it a bit different? Uh, still, it's uh, there is nothing important in this different. Uh, I mean, for some reason we are Ukrainians and they are Russians, but uh, it's uh, almost the same because they are our elder brothers and we are younger brothers and others, others also brothers. Ah, uh, no, Belarusians are also our brothers. <coughs> others are some kind of cousins. But still, it was. It is something which Putin. Um, I, I'm sure that he was. Of course, he was going. Uh, you know, attending history lessons, and he was, and he knew, and he knows that. That and and uh, the biggest problem is that you know, this is um, not only his thinking, because uh, I was uh, talking to uh, one very famous Russian um, uh, academic. Um, whom I would not name because you know everybody knows him because he's the founding father of um, all uh, nuclear sciences in Russia. In back in 2014, and he said, and he told me, um, you know, um, it's a big tragedy, which which what happened between our countries. But um, for me, but but you know, okay, there are different countries, but you know, let us agree, we are the same nation, and why? Because there is a very a strong historical intervening because he said my my dad he is a Jew from Vinitsa my mom she's from the Zhitomer then they got married and they went to Moscow and I was born in Moscow and my dad is the famous Russian academic I am also the famous Russian academic so we are the same nation because it was something which was um, down in purpose in the Soviet Union when they were you know like mixing mixing na- nations to say that that actually there is no clear nations and there is no difference between Russian and Ukrainians. And then you can be, you know, actually, I don't know, Ukraine-born Jew, but you are a Russian academic and you are perceiving yourself as a Russian academic and one of the most respected people in in Russia and moreover in the West. So 
and he's and that guy he's one of the most liberal people uh, in Russian academia. So what to say about more conservative people as Vladimir Putin? This is his strong belief. He understands, he perceives Ukraine as if it's a part of his country, suddenly uh, became crazy and split for the crazy, absolutely irrational reasons. And now he's trying to join the uh, enemy uh, alliance because he still perceives the West as the enemy. This is what he believes in. And this is really hard um, to fight because uh, this is belief. Right. And, and so, Mikola, I was, uh, there's a, I want to get, to the heart of why he's doing this, because of, of why the Kremlin, more specifically Vladimir Putin, is doing this, because he talks about Ukrainians being the brother, right? And even though that's still subjecting you as lower, right? Because you're still beneath me at the end of the day. And everything that you're describing, Polina, is how a colonial, that's how colonialism works. That's how a colonial mind thinks and operates. Um, in many respects. But um, Nicole, I just want to ask your take about what is behind this. We're talking about military, but what's the motivation? What is what is supposed to be achieved? Uh, well, I think uh, with regard to this question, there are two parts. First of all, it's a kind of public justifications that provide, but I think it's not the most important things. And the most important thing. So what they are basically talking about, on the one hand, what Polina said about quite a lot, they want to write their greatest geopolitical tragedy, which was a collapse of the USSR, which was a collapse of historical Russian empire, as Putin recently said. And it affected them negatively in terms of the ability to influence security in Europe. Because remember, uh, when Ukraine was part of Russia and empire, Russia was able to project power in Europe, in Central and Eastern Europe, and using uh, not only Ukraine as a launching pad for aggression, but also Ukrainian manpower, uh, basically, to magnify Russian army, because uh, just, just for comparison, USSR had 190 division army at the end of its existence. Now Russia had only 18 division army. So without Ukraine, it's not able to raise this uh, big army and not able to threaten Central and Eastern Europe. So with independent Ukraine, uh, the whole Eastern uh, Europe, whole Central and Eastern Europe is a secure one. So that's, that's one scene. On the other hand, they are talking about be, being threatened. I mean, threatened by NATO westward expansion about Ukrainian membership in NATO. Membership in NATO. Uh, as for me, it's a total nonsense because again, Russia is the biggest conventional power in Europe right now. It's one of two nuclear superpowers and it's very difficult to imagine what can credibly threaten such a kind of power. I mean, in terms of physical existence, uh, especially when we're talking about NATO, which was strictly observing this uh, NATO-Russia founding act uh, and uh, which is not living by the confrontation. So, yes, they are taking steps. I mean, U.S.-NATO, uh, but they are taking steps in response to what Russia did in 2014. And these steps are not that threatening at all towards Russian security. So it's a kind that's for me, just uh, the narrative, uh, just a kind of uh, public justification, but not the real motive. The real motive, as for me, was uh, along with the scene I said that loss of Ukraine was uh, negatively affected the Russian 
power potential Russia ability to influence uh, Europe, uh, two other reasons stand as for me. First, it's uh, Putin's personal legacy. Remember that he's uh, 69 years old and he wants to leave some kind of legacy. And if he's able to uh, conclude the agreement with U.S., that NATO enlargement would stop, uh, that, that would mean that uh, he can create a favorable contrast uh, uh, if he is compared with both Michael Gorbachev and both Boris Yeltsin, who were not able to uh, do something with regards to the NATO existence and, and eastward. Uh, enlargement. And another thing it's about, of course, Russia perceiving itself as a great power, uh, as a great European power, being able to influence European security. They are accustomed to it, because since uh, Vienna Congress of 1814-15, they were major player, especially during the Cold War, uh, controlling one part of Europe and threatening another part of Europe. And when USSR collapsed, they lost this great power status. Uh, they lost ability to influence European security and a NATO West, uh, eastward uh, enlargement. It was a kind of expression that Russia is great power no more, not able to, to influence European security. So if they are able to influence European security the way they want, so we are not talking about now uh, whether these claims are rightful. They, they, they are, of course, groundless. But if they're able to do it, so they're a great power. So as for me, uh, these public justifications about being threatened, it's, it's utter nonsense. Uh, but three major factors are working in. First, they want to write the tragedy of the collapse of the Russian empire and the loss of Ukraine negatively affected their power potential. They want to regain the status of great European power. And Putin want to have either kind of legacy in general, or maybe be prepared for 2024 right. elections with the claims that I'm the one who returned Russia's status as a great European power. If Ukraine didn't give up its nuclear stockpile, if they did have its weapon stockpile, I mean, what, what position would Ukraine be in because in my understanding the you know if in order to control the stockpile i mean all the coals are in moscow from my understanding but i don't think a lot of people know that but do you mind what um yeah well um there are two you know even three maybe positions here first of all of course when it came to the situation of um soviet stockpile uh, nuclear stockpile at the territory of ukraine um, and um, the fa and the new independent Ukraine, um, realistically speaking, Ukraine could not keep it. First of all, um, because of uh, the fact that Russia. First of all, because of the international dimension. Why? Because um, even though Ukraine was the main uh, missile producer, heavy missile producer in the USSR, and actually having lost Ukraine, Russia lost almost two thirds of its um, missile potential heavy missile potential, Ukraine were, uh, was not producing uh, nuclear warheads itself. And, um, okay, Russia was totally against um, the idea that, uh, you know, we can provide service for the uh, nuclear warheads deployed at the territory of Ukraine, right? They said that uh, th those are our warheads, just bring them back um, and that's it. 
Um, the United States, of course, they supported Russia because they didn't want to have uh, three or four nuclear states instead of one, which was the Soviet Union, and it was uh, and also was. So uh, they, it was a very strong international pressure, and the main signal sent from Washington was that um, you know um, since you are not giving up your nuclear potential, you won't be accepted to any international organizations. Um, we want um, you know you won't be able to. Um, behave as the fully fledged member of international community because we won't let you in. Um, and it was a very strong pressure. On the other hand, they said, if you if you do, we'll help you. We are giving you money for the disarmament. We are, we are giving you money. At the moment you want, we're giving you money. Right. I want to add in something. Yeah. Um, there's some context for a lot of people who may not remember this. Um, but keep in mind that this is 1994. The union fell essentially just three years ago you know, 1991, when this is all happening. And this is when um, George Bush, the father, uh, was coming off of his, um, he was coming off of helping to kind of coast the, you know, the end of the Cold War. I mean, it was, it was the diplomacy of Ronald Reagan, but it was George Bush who benefited from that politically. So in America, there was an incentive going back to the international development uh, element that you're discussing of denuclearizing. A lot of people don't know right now, um, Russia and the United States holds 90% of the world's stockpile, which is around 14,000, 15,000, somewhere in that range. But before that, there were tens of thousands of weapons around. And so to go from that, and it was up to about 70 from my understanding, um, but to go from that significant drop given the political climate, um, was a miracle. And also keep in mind that Boris Yeltsin was president of Russia at that time, just for our, just for our listeners. And so Bill Clinton came into power. And so one of the major things that uh, was going on was this retirement of weapons, right? And so the 14,000 mark did not exist in the early 1990s. So we are, we were getting to that point where you're uh, not only just uh, just retiring those weapons, we're not talking about deployment, but just taking them and deconstructing them so that they can no longer be used. And so I just want to give some context to what was going on at that time. The union had just fallen around three years ago. So I just, yeah, but go ahead. Yeah, so um, by the way, um, you know, considering nuclear warheads, uh, uh, there were, um, I think that at the territory of Ukraine, they were the number of nuclear warheads was a bit more than now Russia has. I mean, it was about uh, 1,000 uh, 1, uh, and maybe five or like 700 strategic uh, warheads, nuclear warheads. Okay, the, the ones which are used for the uh, missiles uh, which are going to the United States. I would yeah. say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And yes, uh, and about 4,000 uh, uh, of tactical nuclear warheads, the ones which are used in the regional, I mean, against uh, NATO in Europe. Yeah. So, so plus. War, yeah, so basically just imagine this big old map where, you know, New York, Washington, D.C., for all of our folks around there, we were going to be hit first. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then Brussels, Paris, 
London, everything. Wales, every, yes. Yeah, <laughs> it could be done. Uh, you know, whatever. But um, unlike tactical nuclear warheads, I mean, we were not controlling strategic warheads. Uh, Moscow were controlling them. But there was, uh, there were rumors, and um, you know, there is an information that there was some work to detach our command and control from there so we could block uh, their launch. But even though we, we could not, uh, you know, fulfill their launch because, you know, the launch, the process of launch is uh, that the president gives an order and then uh, the guy who is sitting in the silo, he push, pushed the button. So Ukrainian soldiers were... Mm, supposed not to do this. Still, there was some risk, and um, therefore, um, of course, uh, Russia and the United States did whatever to mm, prevent Ukraine from joining the club. Uh, the other question, because now it's a very wide speculation as for the issue whether Ukraine could retain this potential. So what would happen, and would anything happen, if Ukraine retained nuclear weapons? And, uh, of course, uh, there are a lot of, um, you know, uh, uneducated people who said that, of course, we should have retained it. Um, no, we, we could not. I mean, we are not, uh, you know, North Korea to to be isolated from the whole world and to, you know, fanatically work on nuclear bomb because we don't have anything except this bomb. But um, just hypothetically, now it was also my question to that uh, famous Russian academic, uh, who is uh, the founding father of all Soviet sciences about nuclear deterrence. Um, I was just, you know, wondering, um, asking him, so what do you think? If we just, you know, in, in a fantastic world, if we had nuclear weapons, do you think Russia would attack us? He said, definitely not. Because Putin, he has a very clear hooligan uh, psychology. He's afraid of big gun. And he would never, uh, he's always taking what is possible to take. What is uh, what is weak? He's never going to the to confront the strong power. Of course, you know the the other thing is that we di we di didn't really have the opportunity to retain nuclear weapons, but we even didn't do whatever to uh, substitute um, with conventional deterrence what we have lost. Right? And explain conventional. Uh, yeah. Basically, conventional is yeah. Conventional is uh, deterrence, uh, which you. You are deterring your enemy uh, with the help of conventional arms, not nuclear arms, not right? Nuclear. That's all. I yeah. see, I'm just saying because a lot of people don't know basically anything that's not nuclear. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it was anything. So we didn't do anything. I mean, I think that we even do whatever to, to bury our army uh, and to make it non-capable. -cap it's not ours, of course, but it's our um, <laughs> distinguished presidents. Uh, in of course, you know, first of all, President Yanukovych and others. So, and I think also Russian um, intelligence did a lot uh, to to help us to ruin our army at some point. Yeah, I'm sorry for. No, no, no. That's 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 a good point. So, Mikola, um, I'm interested in your thoughts about um, now. How do you see Ukrainian security evolving? with the fact that the um, the budget needs to improve, you know, the budget needs to be increased, but also this has a lot to do with the Ukrainian economy. It has a lot to do with some of the recent news cycle where, you know, you have Petro Poroshenko who arrived yesterday and, you know, he's supposed to stand trial on corruption charges. A lot of people see this as a distraction, but a lot of people are also saying that one of the things that Petro Poroshenko didn't do during his administration um, was deal with corruption in the courts. And so 
it, it's not so there's there's an economic factor there's an issue of corruption that has to be dealt with and all these things manifest in how you can finance um your country so with this context Nicola can you just talk about what needs to be done um from a country standpoint in order for it to be more secure first of all I think it's proper to say that uh, military is a function of the general state of the economy so we can't create a miracle given that our economy is not in the best shape so uh, yes, it's first of all about economic development, creating proper conditions. So we have, even if we spend the same share of a GDP, we now spend approximately 2.8% of GDP on the army. So if we spend the same amount, which is quite a huge uh, amount, huge share of GDP. So if we uh, retain the share, but the, the share is quite bigger. So. I can say that there could be a kind of uh, a miracle, you know, yes, we have a lot of work to do in terms of best utilization of these resources. We have a problem with it and to tell otherwise that we are perfect in spending the last hrivna of our uh, defense budget in most efficient, the best way would not be true, of course, we are talking now honestly. But on the other hand, if we right now imagine the situation that, yes, we are the best in utilizing these resources, uh, still we would uh, not meet, meet, uh, meet all the needs and we would still uh, need either to increase uh, the defense budget as share of GDP uh, uh, to meet all the needs or we, will, uh, we would need uh, increased uh, Western security assistance so now it's actually uh, we are not able to to increase the share of gdp dedicated to defense defense without negatively affecting our economy because you know ussr was following this way and it negatively affected uh, this country we are in a long-term confrontation with russia and we need to think not only about defense but about the soundness of our finance soundness of our economy we do not need overburden our economy and we we spent quite a lot i mean 2.8 percent of gdp specifically on defense so it's uh, qu quite a big sum uh, of money so it's either increasing the share of the gdp dedicated to defense without uh, some miracle economic development i think it would be a wrong way to to go because it would negatively affect our society economy right. in the long term or either it's creating favorable environment for economy so it would blossom and uh, develop at the rates much bigger than now, which would mean that this 2.8% of GDP in absolute terms are much bigger than the current rate of uh, 4.35 billion of uh, dollars. Or it's increased uh, assistance from our partners. Uh, I think uh, the best way for Ukraine it's uh, making ways to better utilize our limited resources because resources are always limited and also asking uh, and making the case for our partners that look we are doing our part of job we are better uh, than yesterday in using our limited resources so please help us uh, 
in increasing uh, security assistance. We appreciate everything we receive, of course, from our uh, Western partners, but uh, still it's, it's not enough. So I think the best way would be th this one, uh, better utilizing limited resources, creating the proper list of equipment we need uh, in the first order, in the second order, in third order. So, uh, and keeping uh, with this list, better utilizing resources and asking our um, the partners to increase defense assistance because as for me it's a road to nowhere if we overburden our not economy not in the best shape with uh, increased uh, defense uh, budget it's kind of possible but uh, it's not re re realistic uh, I, I would say and not uh, a best way though in the other hand you need to remember the case of Israel that uh, spent uh, more than, I would say, 30% of its GDP in the first 30 years of its existence for defense when its existence was at stake. So there are cases where societies are ready to tolerate high defense expenditure, but alas, it's not the case of uh, among Ukrainians uh, whether they're ready to tolerate uh, a much bigger share of GDP dedicated to defense specifically. Okay, thank you. So I'll let you have the last word, Polina. And uh, just going off of what Mikola said, um, how are Ukrainians thinking about security now? Because we know that Ukraine is a very diverse uh, country. And when you think about NATO, you think about um, just right now the current state uh, of Ukraine politically, where is the, where is the uh, population? in their thinking about uh, its relationship with the West and with NATO and with Russia? Uh, I think that uh, the aggression of uh, 2014 uh, and the events of 2014 uh, pushed the significant part of Ukrainian population who were pretty much anti-NATO uh, to the different side, um, to the opposite side, I mean. Um, I think that before 2014, like, um, uh, not more than 35% of Ukrainians were in favor of um, Ukraine joining NATO. And uh, in 2014, it was about 75%, but now I think it's about 65-70%. So still it's a, a majority of population, which shows um, that um, probably uh, Ukrainians um, see the main umbrella, the main... Uh, uh, capability to defend themselves um, in NATO. Um, and maybe it's uh, sort of the peculiarity of Ukrainian strategic culture, uh, because Ukraine has always uh, been trying to find some kind of strong uh, shoulder uh, to lean to, to be defended. And um, now, and, and at the same time, not to be um, abused by. It usually happened with Russia because Russia has always been uh, very often uh, was our ally in different things. So starting from uh, you know the deep dark history of Bogdan Khmelnytsky, and uh, then in the beginning of 20th century, they were also decided to take common way with Russians. And at the same, and every time we were trying to align with Russians, we were um, oppressed by Russians, we were abused by Russians, and we were deprived of our uh, national identity. So. Um, Unlike uh, Russia, NATO never, you know, deprives a uh, country of its identity and at the same time uh, gives uh, the opportunity to be protected. 
So I think this is a biggest dream of Ukrainians to join uh, somebody who will protect but not abuse. Uh, still, I think it's a very, very distant perspective. Uh, so I don't think that Putin has um, uh, the any kind of reason to worry that Ukraine will join NATO. Um, definitely not, and definitely not in his lifetime. <laughs> that's what I say. Um, yeah, maybe that's so all I, I wanted, wanted to, to say. say. Yeah. yeah, okay. So, Mikola and uh, uh, Polina, thank you both very much for taking time to come on the podcast. And I always like to amplify voices who are actually from the countries thank to you. give their um, perspectives about what's going on in their countries. <laughs> so, and since I'm in Ukraine, um, I'm doing just that. And as for me, I'm going to uh, leave your office. I'm in Polina's office right now and um, here, here in Odessa uh, at the university. And I'm going to go out on the street and people are probably going to ask me to take photos because I look like Santa Claus. So... <laughs> Yes, it's a, still a big holiday today and tomorrow. Um, how is it? It's a baptizing um, of Christ. So uh, probably there are still these two days. People will be intensively asking you to taking pictures because it's still they're still in a holiday mood. Yeah, they're still in the holiday mood because for us the holiday mood ends after the new year. But there's still holiday um, decorations up. And, and and everything. I swear, this country has more holidays than than any place I've been in my entirety of traveling around the world. And anytime I try to set up a meeting, there's always some holiday that gets in the way of it. it it's just it's just just so amazing. But anyway, thank you both very much. I appreciate you all for uh, talking um, and, and, and giving your voice about what's happening. Thank you very much, Trell. Thank you very much. All right, so now it's time to say thank you. For all my Patreon supporters who are still with me and those who are no longer with me, thank you. Also, go to your favorite podcast apps and give me a five-star rating, especially on iTunes. The ratings definitely help magnify uh, my podcast. And for those who give me five stars, that's really excellent. It, It really helps a lot. So please do that. Go on your favorite podcast apps, especially iTunes. And you can also tune in to my twice a week Twitter Spaces show, also named Black Diplomats, where I talk about all things foreign policy. There's no set schedule. You'll just have to follow me at Russian underscore star, and that star with two R's, to learn when I'll be broadcasting a space. And space is a new platform that's offered by Twitter. It's very similar to Clubhouse, where You can hear me engaging other Twitter folks about foreign policy issues of the week and also evergreen stuff. Black Diplomats Podcast comes to you with support from the Outrider Foundation, as well as my devoted Patreon supporters. And production of Black Diplomats comes thanks to Mike Hall, my brother from another mother. Thanks for listening and see you all next week.